0: And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus. The Old Testament book of Exodus and Exodus in chapter number 1. We're beginning a brand new series this morning dealing with the life And ministry of Moses. Now, of course, many of us are familiar with Moses, at least in passing. Maybe you've heard some of the great stories. Maybe you witnessed or watched some of the television shows that had been about the Ten Commandments. But let me tell you that sometimes we learn these things and we learn them incorrectly. There's nothing like walking through the Bible ourselves and to open up and to walk with Moses, to see him as he goes through these great things. And we're going to go and do basically the narrative, the story of Moses, the historical accounts of Moses, and be able to walk with him. And through this series, we'll see a great God who was behind Moses and the personal relationship that God had with Moses. If you wouldn't mind, take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament passage of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Exodus in chapter 1, if you wouldn't mind. And let's start together in verse 1. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says this. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war... They join also unto our enemies, and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters, to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and They were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with vigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and in mortar and in brick. And in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives of which the name of one was Shepherah, and the name of the other, Puah. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live." But the midwives feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men-children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives, and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing, and saved the men-children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that shall be born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Exodus in chapter number one? The book of Exodus in chapter number one, and notice with me in verse number eight. Notice pretty much the whole verse. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. There arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And as we introduce the books. Or the the life and ministry of Moses, we start off with this idea here that there arose a king who over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God and thank you for your precious word. Thank you, it is through your word that we can learn more of you. And as we introduce this whole series and we get to see what the whole thing is about, where does it lead to, what happens when we study the life and ministry of Moses, that we can understand that the whole purpose is to learn of you and to see whom you are. I'm asking that you would open it up in a special way way that when we're done people said wow look at that and that it would make us look at this passage and in fact this whole set of books differently because of whom you are now this is a big ask and in order to do that i cannot do it myself so the best i know how i ask that you fill me with your precious spirit that i set myself aside my goals my ambitions my intellect i give it all aside And just ask that you use me as a vessel, as an instrument, however you see fit, to get your own work accomplished this morning. Thank you again for being a wonderful God. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we approach this, we can see that Exodus chapter 1 is setting up the scene. Setting up the the situation, the scenario, before Moses comes in. On to play. We got to figure out what happened between the end of Genesis all the way up to the time that Moses was needed as a deliverer. If you remember that where we left off at in the book of Genesis, uh, that everyone is doing well. The children of Jacob are here in Egypt and everyone's happy. The Pharaoh's happy. They like the Hebrew people. But when you bring into Moses, all of a sudden the people are in bondage. They're in Terror, they're in much servitude. And they are crying out for a deliverer. And it is then that Moses is brought into the scene by God. What happens between that time? Well, Genesis chapter 1 is the gateway, the transition, that gives us the idea of what is going on historically that goes from good times to the times that they need to deliver. The first thing I'd like to show you here is that the Hebrew people multiplied. The Hebrew people multiplied multiplied now remember in the book of Genesis what occurred is that God had raised up a man By the name of Abraham. And he called him out of the Ur of Chaldees. And he promised that Abraham that he would build a mighty people. A great people from Abraham. And he promised him a son. Now Abraham had to wait a long time before he got that son. But eventually the son of promise came. A man by the name of Isaac. Well Isaac was also delivered the same promise. That from him would come out... um, A group of people like the sand of the sea. A group of people that God would call unto himself. And so Isaac waited a little while. And sure enough he had not just one son. But he had two sons. By the name of Esau and Jacob. Well, God gave the promise not to Esau, but he gave it to Jacob and said, Out of you, I'm going to build a great nation. And the people will be as the sand of the sea. They're just going to be innumerable and accountable. And I'm going to bring them through you. Well, if you remember that Jacob received that promise. And he didn't just receive one son, or two sons, or three sons. He ended up having twelve sons. Now, one of those sons was the favorite and he didn't get along with the other brothers or rather the other brothers didn't get along with him so much that they sold Joseph into slavery. Can you imagine hating your brother so much you want to get rid of him and you decided to going to kill him, but instead of killing him, let's just make some money off of them and you sold your own brother. Now, I know some of you wish you could have sold your brother or sister. But they actually did. And they sold him and put him to Egypt. But they didn't realize that whereas they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so God established Joseph to be in Egypt at the right time, at the right place. And God raised up Joseph From a slave to a prisoner to second in command of all of Egypt. And God used Joseph to save the Egyptian people from a famine. To help them to prepare, help them to have wives. But not only that, he used it so Joseph would be in the right place. So when the famine came, he could save his own family from the situation they had. And so by Pharaoh's request, Joseph brought his father, Jacob, and his other 11 brothers to come live with him in Egypt. And the Bible talks about here in verse number 7, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So it started off where there were 70 of them. In verse number 5, it spoke about 70 people came with Joseph. They came, or Jacob, they came into Egypt and they multiplied. And they multiplied. And they multiplied. And here it is a hundred years later. And there is one million Hebrew people living in Egypt. Now, one million is pretty big. It's a big number, especially when you're living in a different nation and everyone around you is Egyptians, but there's this pocket full of Hebrew people. But God had blessed them and they had multiplied. And now the 70 had increased to 1 million. We saw first of all in this passage here, as the time is going on. That the Hebrew people multiplied. Seventy went to one million. Now that's God's blessing. Especially in just a hundred years time. That is a lot of God's blessing. But we see something else that comes up. Setting up the scenario. Setting up the situation. Is that the Hebrew people placed into bondage. The Hebrew people placed into bondage. Notice with me in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. Which knew... Not Joseph. Now, remember that Joseph was used not only to save his people, but also to save the Egyptians. And it was under Joseph's leadership, his wise counsel, that the Egyptians became the most powerful world empire at that time. And they could go back to Joseph and say it was because of this Hebrew man. It was because of Joseph that we got our wealth. It was because of Joseph that we got our prestige. It is because of Joseph that we are the leader of the world. But what happens is when you fail to teach history, that people forget where they came from. When you fail to teach history, eventually there's going to raise up a generation that don't remember the past. And they don't remember where they came from. And they don't understand where the blessings they have arised from. And because of that, they are no longer thankful. They are ungrateful. And now instead of looking at these people as blessings, they see these Hebrew people as a curse. Notice what he decides to do about it in verse number 9. And he, this is the Pharaoh, said unto the people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. So when looking at between the Egyptian people and the Hebrew people, they look and say, look at this enclave of Hebrew people. They could whoop us up. And they're living in my backyard. If they ever get sideways with us, if they ever get angry with us, They're going to be an obstacle we have to deal with. Notice as it goes on in verse 10. Come, let us deal wisely with them. Now, their idea of wisdom didn't come from the Lord. They're coming up with a game plan. How do we neutralize this threat? So they're looking politically. They're looking to save their own selves. They're not looking for the wisdom of the Lord. Notice as it goes on. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it came to pass. So notice what their goal is. Their goal is to keep the Hebrew people from multiplying. To let the Egyptians catch up for a little bit. If we could hold them back, if we could keep them from multiplying, if we could keep them from having children, if we could do something, our goal is to keep them from multiplying. Now, what's interesting is what they're trying to stop happen actually helps it to happen. Their job to stop them from multiplying is going to cause them to multiply more. Notice as it goes on. It says, come, let us deal with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join unto our enemies and fight against us, so we get them out of the land. So again, they're fearful. They're afraid that what would happen if an enemy comes to attack them, that they have these people living in their backyard within their defenses, that they would be exposed, so they have to take care of this potential threat. Verse number 11. Therefore... They did set over them, the Hebrew people, taskmasters, to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. So what happened is the Egyptians made the Hebrew people slaves. And they forced them into bondage. They forced them to help build some of these treasure cities. They helped them to build some of their monuments. They forced the people to work for them in the fields. Notice as it goes on in verse number 12. But, but, the more they, the Egyptians, afflicted them, the Hebrew people, the more they multiplied and grew. If you're in the habit of marking things or writing down notes, let me tell you this has always been true that persecution makes God's people grow. Persecution makes God's people grow. That is true all throughout history. Whether it was the Hebrew people. Or whether it was the Christian people. That whenever persecution came. It doesn't stamp out uh, the Christians. But instead there becomes more Christians. We know that during the Roman Empire. Emperors That there were ten major persecutions against the Christians, and each one of those ten persecutions of early Christianity just made the Christians blossom and grow. It got to the place where the last of the persecutions was by the Roman emperor Diocletian, and Diocletian had killed so many Christians and had burned so many Bibles that he actually put up a big monument that says, "I destroyed." Christianity. What's funny about that is that the next Roman emperor to come out after him made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So much for destroying it, it now becomes the official religion. The same thing they try to destroy. All throughout history, whenever the people persecuted God's people, God causes them to multiply and increase persecution always makes us grow and as they're watching the people multiplied they the Egyptians were grieved because of the children of Israel where every time we try to destroy them they keep coming back and they come back more the more that we're harder on them the more that we try to destroy them, the more we make them miserable the more of them there are oh what a horrible problem they had Notice what they try to do now. Verse 13. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. This is harshness. That means before they just made them work. But now they're adding more slavery on it. One was just to force them to work. Now they're getting the lash. Now they're getting beat. Now they're being in bondage. Now there's more restrictions upon them. Verse number 14. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and in mortar, and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. And their service, which they made them serve, was with vigor. Now all the children of Israel are treated like slaves. Now all the children of Israel are under bondage. And it is not a good time. It is not a favorable time. It is not an easy time. But it is a time where the children of Israel have to trust God more. So we could see this, the Hebrew people were multiplied. The Hebrew people were placed in a bondage. Then what happens is that the Hebrew midwives show courage. The Hebrew midwives show courage. Now, because bondage didn't work, because slavery didn't work, the Egyptians go back to the drawing board. They said the more that we persecute them, the more that we afflict them... The more they grow, the more of them that they have. So now we have to try mandatory, government-mandated birth control. We need to do something to control their population. We have to do something to keep them from multiplying, for them to increase. And so here's the new decree in verse number 15. And the king of Egypt spake unto the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Siphrah, and the name of other, Puah. So he grabs and has a meeting of all the midwives. Remember what a midwife is. Now they didn't have nice uh, hospitals or facilities. But they would have ladies who were trained to assist other ladies in having babies. And so someone would be in the receiving end of catching the baby. And help everything to go. And to cut the cord. And to make sure the baby's breathing. And to take care of all of this. And that was the midwife's job. And so Pharaoh has a meeting with all the midwives. And say listen here. If you find a male child, you're supposed to kill him when he's born. Get rid of him. That's your order to make sure that that baby is killed immediately. Now, if it's a baby girl, sure, we'll deal with them. But you've got to get rid of those boys. If it comes out a boy, you have to kill him. Notice in verse 16. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon their stools... Now, let me take a little pause here and explain that. See them upon their stools. Now, this is something different than what we do today. Back then in the day, whenever a lady was getting ready to have a baby. Now, ladies out here, listen. This is going to be interesting. Whenever a lady was getting ready to have a baby back in that ancient world, they didn't put them in nice, comfortable hospital beds. They didn't let them lay down. They put them on two stools and the idea was is they wanted gravity to do its work. And so the baby would pop out and you'd have someone at the bottom ready to catch. Ladies, those who've had babies, how would you like to have that? No epidural, no drugs. You have to sit on a stool spread out and someone down below ready to catch. Sounds something interesting. Just one of those things about the ancient world. Aren't you glad that we now have epidurals and soft, comfy hospital beds and taking care of this? But Pharaoh says, all right, when you're down there and you're ready to catch and they're sitting on the stools, the baby's getting ready to come, you're letting gravity come. If you find it to be a boy, you kill him right then and there. Verse number 16 And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. So those midwives, they feared God and they said, God wants these children to live. He created these children for a reason. He's the one that allowed them to be born. He created them. He made them with purpose. We have to do what God told us to do. Now, they didn't rebel against the king, but they submitted unto the Lord because they feared him. Notice in verse 18. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? So we had another meeting and said, Listen, I gave you that order and it's been a year or so. Why aren't you, are they still growing? How come you haven't killed these men, child? How come you've allowed these baby boys to live? Now, notice their response. Uh, they had to think of something. So notice with me in verse 19. And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women. So they start off and say, let me tell you something. The Hebrew ladies are not like the Egyptian ladies. Let me tell you what the Hebrew ladies are like. They are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come to him. Let me tell you that these hebrew ladies they don't mess around they got stuff to do and so they get ready to have the baby they get up on the stools poof, there goes the baby by the time we get there the baby's already out the mother's already going on their own business we don't have time to take the babies from the mother and kill them because once a mother has that baby she's not going to let him go they said they beat us to it by the time we get there the job's already done Sorry that you Egyptian ladies are too wimpy and can't handle it. Let me tell you, these Hebrew ladies, they get the job done. And so, there's their excuse to them. It says, notice in verse number um, 20. Therefore God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied And waxed very mighty. Now they go from one million and they still have 80 plus years before they're delivered. They're going to go from one million people to two and a half million people in the next 80 years. Imagine that. God is blessing them. They started off from 70. A hundred years later, a million. 80 years later, approximately two and a half million. That's a lot of kids being born. That's a lot of babies being born. No wonder the Egyptians are frightened. When you have a population that's, that's multiplying like that, that's true multiplication. The Egyptians say, we've got to do something about this. I mean, if they have another million and a half people born in 80 years, what will happen in another 80? What happens in another 80 after that? They're going to overwhelm us in no time. We've got to do something to stop this. In verse number 21. And it came to pass because the midwives feared God. He made them houses. Meaning he blessed their families. Not the place they lived at. But he blessed their families because they feared God. Now Pharaoh changes the rules. Instead of telling the midwives to kill him. Before it was just the midwives. But now... Pharaoh charged all his people saying, Every son that is born, ye shall cast in the river. And every daughter, ye shall save alive. Now it's no longer the midwife's job. All right, midwives won't take care of it. Fine, I'll give an order to all the Egyptians. If you find a baby boy, you throw him in the river right then and there. Now it is a little bit more deadly. Now is a time where it's frightening. If you have a baby boy... He's going to die. Now, all of this is to bring an introduction to all of this series. Notice, if you don't mind, there are two phrases I want to highlight to you. Notice with me in verse number 17. It says, but the midwives feared God. Once again, in verse number 21, the midwives feared God. What you're going to find all throughout The five books of Moses is this emphasis that God wants us to fear him. God wants us to fear him. Now, with this, we need to explain a little bit more. Because so often we use the phrase, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we go, okay, what does this mean? How does this apply? How does this happen? So, if God throughout the books of Moses is placing an emphasis, in fact, my initial count, just a quick count, between 20 to 30 times within these five books, we have this idea, the phrase, to fear God, to fear the Lord. That what we're finding is that God is going to do miracles. He's going to give laws. He's going to reveal Himself all for the purpose that we, even today would fear him. So if God desires for us to fear him, don't you think we need to understand what does this mean? To fear the Lord. Fear is an emotion. Now, one of the interesting things that God has brought me to is my own personal Bible reading. I'm doing an emphasis of study on Emotions, meaning that I started from Genesis 1.1, and any time an emotion was brought up, whether it was fear or anger, whether it was love or bitterness, whatever it was, whatever the emotion was, I record it down and uh, write down the reference, find out where it's at, and uh, it's amazing study. God is stirring and learning about things. We know that one thing about God is that God is emotional. God has emotions. Aren't you glad that God has emotions like compassion and love? That he's not a static God. He's not a God that's sanitized. God has emotions. If God didn't have emotions and everything was based off of intellectual calculations, we would all be dead. After all, think about it. What benefit do you have for God? You're a person who fails God all the time. You've rebelled against God. And then you got saved and you rebelled against Him more. You fail Him. You disobey His commandments. What good do you have? On an idea of a quick calculation chart, the value or advantage of keeping you alive is nothing but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, because God is emotional in nature, that when we were created in God's image, guess what? We received emotions. Now, some of you may think that's good, you may like your emotions, like my daughter who when she smiles, she smiles with her whole body. And when she's sad, she's sad with her whole body. We have emotions. And you can't deny it. Not like my son who pretends that he doesn't have emotions. Okay, fine. As much as he may try to hide it, we all have emotions. You have to understand that. We are all emotional. And you can't just erase emotions from your being. Imagine how boring it would be in life if you didn't have emotions. Football games would be a lot more boring, right? Yay. There's things that we're passionate about. There are things that we're emotional about. Emotions are part of us. And because God knows that we're emotional, He wants us to be able to use them correctly for Him. So... We also know something else is that emotions come as we develop a personal knowledge and experience with someone. For example, if there was someone that you never met, you don't know them at all, you've never even heard their name, and someone sends you an obituary that said so-and-so died, are you just going to start weeping? Oh no! Why did they die? If you don't even know who they are, there's no emotional attachment. You 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 feel nothing for them because you have no personal experience. You have no knowledge of them. They're they're a stranger. I don't even know who this guy is. I mean, we're not expected to cry over every person who dies in the obituary pages. But when we start to get to know someone. We start to have personal experiences with someone. We start to develop a personal emotional attachment. The fear of the Lord is an emotion we develop towards the Lord as we realize who he is and get to know him personally. So think about that. The fear of the Lord is an emotion we develop towards the Lord as we realize who He is and know Him personally. So someone who has no emotions towards God doesn't know who He is. You may have someone who passionately hates God. I hate God! Well, he has emotions towards God. It's because... He has a wrong vision of who God is. But he has an emotional attachment. At least he has something. For us, as we get to know who God is, who is God? He is the creator God. He is the powerful God. He's the God who will be our judge. That should elicit, as we know him, an emotional response towards him when we understand how much he loves us, we recognize what he did for us on the cross of Calvary, we think about what he does for us, it should elicit an emotional response. And as you get to know God more, as you understand his power, as you learn who he truly is, you begin to develop what the Bible says, a fear of the Lord. Now, that fear takes many aspects, not just one. Some people just try to put it at the idea of a fear and trembling. Well, that is one aspect, and that is part of it. You can't divorce that out. Some people put that fear as an idea that it's a high respect. And that's a true thing, but you can't separate that out too. It is all of those. Some would say, which one is it? Yes. Yes. It is all of them. We have all had someone that we respected, or at least I'm assuming that you had someone that you respected enough that you did not want to disappoint them. That you, There was that one person you did not want to fail because you have an emotional response to. There was something to it that the worst thing that could ever ha- happen is for them to say, I'm so disappointed in you. That would just devastate you. Well, that is a fear that you have. That's an emotional response that you have because of a personal attachment and knowledge to someone. You could have the idea that, oh no, I'm going to mess up. Please God, I don't want to fail you. That comes because of a personal attachment. Someone who has no emotions towards God does not know who God is. So as we're introduced to this concept that these midwives feared God, we're also seeing the underlying principle of these five books of Moses. That God wants us to know who He is. He wants us to know His power. He wants to know that He is the authority. He is going to be our judge. And as we know Him and acknowledge these and get to know Him personally, we will develop a fear of God. An emotional response to someone we have a personal attachment to. So again, someone who has no emotions towards God. They have no fear of God before their eyes. Is someone who doesn't know God personally. And God is a stranger. And that means that there's something wrong with the relationship. You cannot be a blood-bought believer who loves the Lord and have no response to Him. You cannot be a blood-bought believer who's had any contact with God and have no emotional response to Him. That means there's something bad wrong. When someone says, eh, and don't care what God says. Someone goes, eh, eh, Sure, God's out there, but it has no doesn't do anything to me. There is something bad wrong. And it is because they do not know God personally, experientially for themselves. God is just a stranger. And, you know, if I make a stranger mad, okay, I don't know who he is. If I do something a stranger doesn't like, doesn't bother me because i don't know who they are i have no personal attachment but what we're going to find throughout the book of exodus throughout this whole series is god is showing us who he is when god performs the miracles and puts the plagues upon egypt He is showing the people of God, there is a God. But he's also showing the people of Egypt, there is a God. The whole time he's working with Pharaoh to say, Pharaoh, you will obey me because I am God. Remember, that was whole Pharaoh's thing. Who is this God? And God said, let me introduce you until you have an emotional response of a fear of God and say, I know who God is. And Pharaoh did. When he put those... The, the, um, parted the water for the people in the Red Sea. He was showing those people, look at what God can do. And by the way, this God is the one who made you. When God spoke to the people from Mount Sinai. The people were fear and trembling. And they went to Moses and said, God, please... You go talk to God. If we hear his voice again, I don't think we could stand it. They're having an emotional response to God. And all of this time, God is trying to show them who he is personally, so they develop a fear of who God is. That fear comes when someone develops a personal, experiential knowledge of God for themselves. If you don't mind, let me show you just a couple quick passages that build up on this. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Proverbs chapter 1. The book of Proverbs chapter 1. As we understand, you study the idea of the fear of God. It is found throughout the entire Bible. And again, I'm just sharing my own experiences with you. Before this year, the fear of God was something I understood intellectually. But it wasn't until I personally started studying emotions and how emotions work. Now, I was always considered myself a fairly stable, emotionless guy. But when you start studying how important emotions really are, when they're used correctly towards the Lord, you could see that it does have a great impact towards this. And it helps us to understand this definition of the fear of the Lord. Notice within Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 and notice with me verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise. Notice that emotion there too. Wisdom and destruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom of knowledge as you fear God where does the fear of God come it comes for as we have an emotional response to God as we know him personally and experientially we know him as we get to know God we develop a fear of him and the Bible says that when you begin to have an emotional response towards God because of your knowledge of who he is that is the beginning of wisdom Because as we get to know God personally, we begin to get the information. When you want to please God, when you love God, when you recognize who He is, you want to know more about Him. It's where you start from. But those who have no desire, no emotional response towards God because they don't know Him, the Bible says that fools despise wisdom and instruction. That fools that say, I don't care what God says. The Bible says they're actually despised, an emotional response. It's not an intellectual response. It's an emotional response. Eh, I don't care what's right. That's a fool. Notice with me in the book of Proverbs chapter 9. Building upon that same thought, the fear of the Lord. Again, All throughout the Bible, you could trace this idea of the fear of the Lord. Notice with me Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now before we saw it was the beginning of knowledge. Here it's the beginning of wisdom. What is wisdom? It's knowledge applied. That is, we get to know God. We can apply it to our everyday lives. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. That as we get to know God, we understand more of our world around us and what is going on. But it begins as we get to know God. How do I know I'm getting to know God? Because I develop a personal, emotional response that comes from the knowledge of who God is. This teaches us here that the fear of the Lord produces faith as we learn who God is. The Bible talks about in Romans 10, uh, 17. That faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. The word of God remember. Its main purpose is to reveal God to man. That as we go through the word of God. We learn more about him. We develop an emotional response. We realize that this is a God who is powerful. Who can keep his word. And he could do it. We know that the fear of God brings us to the To the place where we obey God. Because we realize he is our judge. Knowing that we're going to stand before and give an account to him. It is the fear of the Lord that God is trying to bring. And it's not just a fear because we see something scary. It's not a jump scare type thing. Where all of a sudden something jumps out at us. But it is a fear that comes because we know who he is personally. And knowing one day we're going to stand before this powerful God and give an account. This should elicit an emotional response because of the knowledge of who God is.